As Andrew said, uh, my name is Heath Taws. I, I actually, I did used to work here. I'll give you a little inside baseball. You guys probably don't know this, but I was fired uh, by Dr. Brian Fletcher. I don't know if you knew that. He, he told me that the gospel changed everything. I said, then why do you still look the way you do? Where is he? I'm just kidding. I love Brian so much. It's, um, <laughs> it is um, an indescribable joy to be up here. It's like, it's like coming home to family. I love this church so much. And uh, if you are a member here, I'm sorry, I'm just starting out. If you're a member here, you are blessed and you are loved. This is... Um, a wonderful church to be a part of. Today I'm going to be talking about what it means to comfort one another as believers, particularly through suffering and how only, only the cross of Christ can bring healing to our soul. As Brian does say, the gospel does change everything. So our text today is going to be 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 3 through 7. I encourage you to read along with me if you will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort of which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which we experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I have four points today for the note-takers. I know that's a Presbyterian taboo. You're not supposed to go past three. Uh, I'm breaking the rules. And so we have four points today. The four points are, uh, first, we are comforted by our eternal standing before God. Secondly, we are comforted by our shared sufferings as believers. Thirdly, we are comforted by sharing in Christ's sufferings. And fourthly, we are comforted by our great hope in Christ. Well, for those who uh, do not know me, I I did work here. I left about three years ago. October will be three years. And I moved to my hometown of Panama City, Florida, the Redneck Riviera. Riviera, We're right on the panhandle of Florida. If you know, it's beautiful there. And I took a ministry position at my parents' church. Uh, My parents live there. My wife, Ashley's parents, live there. And it just made sense to go back. We had two kids. We just had Ridley, my second and uh, it was just time. I, the guilt trips from my parents to come down, was, it was becoming unbearable. So we moved down. And the month before we moved down, we had sold our house. I'd gotten the job. In October of 2018, a Category 5 hurricane named Michael devastated the Panhandle. At its peak, it was 162 mile per hour. And the church that I was supposed to go to had no roof, had no windows. It was utterly demolished. It was really bad. And I called and I said, do I have a job? And the pastor said, I don't know. (laughs) I have to talk to the elders. But he couldn't get a hold of the elders because cell phone towers were down. And so it was very, uh, a trying time. It was, it was scary. We had six million dollars worth of damage. There was no insurance for the church. The loss was hard to describe. Homes We're gone. Businesses closed forever. Thousands of people displaced. People left. They never came back. Legal battles with insurance companies, shady contractors. Maybe some of this rings a bell for for people who have had to deal with this. 
And almost three years have passed, and the church building is still in shambles. We're still trying to rebuild. Uh, But the body of Christ is strong. My job description changed drastically. I'm sure you can imagine. My first year was uh, doing triage work. So I came in. I was supposed to be the family's pastor. And what I ended up doing was taking chainsaws. Every day I'd grab work gloves. I was uh, living in a condo with my wife and two kids. And I was spending every single day just cleaning up mold and mildew. That seemed like that was my job. Week after week, I saw people suffer. I heard traumatic stories of loss. And then I would live, again, in a condo, a little hotel. Sometimes we were hopping from place to place. We had nowhere to go. We were technically homeless until this past December when we had been building a house, but it took forever to get this house built due to uh, cost of wood and everything going on, and we finally got in. So it's been, um, it's been a ride. It's been a journey. And then, of course, you know, we were getting close to a, a sense of normalcy, and our ministry was coming back. Everything seemed like we were, we were meeting at a different church, and this little thing called COVID hit us. As the band Smash Mouth says, well, the years start coming, and they don't stop coming. Great philosophers of truth. Well, why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because I want you to feel horribly bad for me. I want you to... to <laughs> No, I I tell you that because I survived, and I'm here, and believe it or not, I'm relatively sane, and I'm also filled with a great thankfulness towards God. I've witnessed things that a lot of people will not get to witness. I've witnessed in the midst of great suffering and loss, I've been encouraged, and I've been comforted by the gospel. And I want to comfort you with that truth today that God is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. In Christ, you are a new creation. You can have peace and rest even in the midst of life's trials and storms because Jesus is with you. Which leads me to my first point. We are comforted by our standing before God. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God of God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So I want to start here by telling you the good news. I want to tell you the good news of Jesus. In Christ, for the believer, there is no condemnation. The wrath that God had towards you and me because of our sin, the wrath that we deserved due to our sin was absorbed like a sponge by Christ on the cross. Victory is won, accomplished, imputed to us who believe. The Holy Spirit is now given to us as a deposit, a down payment, a sign, a seal, guaranteeing our inheritance as sons and daughters of the King. And what does the Bible say? It's by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. It's from God. And since God has now declared you righteous in Christ, in order for him to toss me out, in order for him to toss you out of the family, he would have to toss his son out as well. You and Jesus are so united, so connected, nothing the Bible says will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. That's called justification. That's the doctrine of justification. It means God declared us righteous in Christ. This is the foundation for everything we do in the Christian life. So I want to start today by announcing this heavenly verdict to you. I want to announce to you not guilty. I want you to have comfort in that verdict. Because the verdict of no condemnation frees us to now love God as Father rather than resent Him as a slave master. 
Listen to what Paul says. He is instead now called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It's important to note that every other religion on earth has a set of scales and weights as their symbol. But Christianity has a cross and an empty tomb. What this means is that the believer's status before God is given all at once. So at the very moment you believe, the very moment you receive Christ as your Lord, your salvation is so secure, it's as if you spent a thousand years in God's heavenly courts already. There are no super-Christians in this room. There are super-sinners saved by a super-savior. Well, how does that bring you comfort? Does that bring you comfort? <laughs> brings me great comfort. Because it means I don't have to prove that I'm worthy of God's love. He loves me completely in Christ. It means access is permanently open to him as my God, as my King, as my Father. It means I'm free, you're free, from keeping score, from checking boxes. As Andrew would say often from the treadmill of works, Because the account's settled. In Christ, it is finished. Not guilty. No condemnation. Therefore, we can now have real peace. Real, true comfort. Real peace with God and man. Peace in good times. Peace in bad times. Peace through laughter. Peace through tears. Jesus, in John 16, 33, what does he say? You can finish it for me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So in order for us to talk about comfort or having any sort of comfort in life, we must first be comforted by this truth of the gospel message. The Bible says in Christ you are free, you are saved, you are redeemed, so stop acting like you're not. (laughs) Stop living contrary to your actual reality in Christ. If the Son has set you free, then you're what? Free indeed. So now you ask the question, well, what am I free to do? Free to do what? Well, to love God and love your neighbor, of course. That's that's the good part of being free. You're free now to actually love God, to actually love your neighbor. Martin Luther says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And your neighbor is suffering. And your neighbor is in great need of comfort. Well, how do I know that? Did you live through 2020 with me? Did we all live through that together? Are we still living through suffering? Financially, physically, mentally, spiritually, people are suffering. And I'm not sure if you've looked at the news lately, but do you see any peace in the world? Is there any comfort? Are people at peace with God and their neighbors? This is why I have to start here. This is why the declaration of the gospel, the declaration of what Christ has done on my behalf, on your behalf, is the only thing that will bring us any peace, any comfort. The gospel changes everything, and it must be the foundation on which everything else is built. He is the God of comfort and mercies. He is our Father. Second point. Our second point is we are comforted by our shared sufferings as believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We had a group um, 
of college kids from RUF come down. We had so many groups of brothers and sisters from all across America come down to help us right after the storm. And there was one group in particular who was with us for a week. And there was a, a rough day where we were chainsawing this guy's yard. It took like six hours to clear this guy's backyard of huge, huge oaks. And then we went on to build a shed for this woman. That took another three hours. She had no storage. All her stuff was soaking wet. Then we went to clean mildew off pews. It was a real riveting day, a real exciting day. And this college kid came to me and he looked at me and he said, Heath, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm having a hard time seeing how God is going to work any good out of this. Because we all know the verse, right? God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And I looked at him and I said, <laughs> I said, brother, if this storm brings us any closer to Christ, even an inch closer to Christ, I'd welcome another hurricane. And I didn't say that because I'm a super Christian. I said it because I had help that day. And I was exhausted, mentally, physically. And I had people coming to me who didn't know me at all. And they were the bride of Christ. And they were going to hold me in their arms that day. And I needed that comfort. And I felt close to my Savior because he sent his people. And you see, that's the union that we share. That's why I can come back here today and I see family. By the, by the last count, when we had all our people come and go, all the volunteer crews, they had saved us as a church $500,000 in cleanup and demolition work. The Church of Christ. This is partly why when people bash on the church, I get so red in the face. Because what they're saying is, I love Jesus, I just hate his wife. My mother-in-law is recently divorced, moved into an apartment on her own. She lived with, a guy, with her husband for 40 years. 40 years and they got divorced. And she's so brave, I'm so proud of her, but I was also worried for her, living by herself after all that time. And her first week in her apartment, her ladies' small group shows up and brings her gift cards They bring her food, they encourage her, they bring her comfort. Now I want you to think here of all the get well cards you've received, and the phone calls, and the emails, and the texts. How many people in this church have loved you so well? How many of them have prayed for you and you knew it? What about those who celebrate the lives of your children, who watch them in nursery week after week? Think of the faces of the brothers and sisters who have been with you at funerals, who have wept with you at gravesides, visited you in the hospital, have listened to you talk on for hours and hours. When my wife and I had our second child, Ridley, here at the hospital, uh, Brian and Julie were some of the first people that came and visited us. And I said, how did you get in here? And I think Brian said, oh, we told him we were family. <laughs> not, not, oh, I'm a pastor, you know, that probably would have gotten him in. I think he said, I, I told him we were family. And when we first moved here, my wife was pregnant. We were scared and young, and we had never bought a house before. We had all these things happening. And Michelle brought us this, Michelle Comrade brought us this huge basket of goodies and food. My wife still talks about that to this day, how welcoming that was. I could talk about how people in here have, have helped me financially through seminary, how I needed a lawnmower so somebody bought me one. I could spend hours telling of God's people and how he works in the lives of his people to comfort each other. 
And so sure, yeah, there are messy churches. This is a messy church. That's okay because we're sinful, messy people. But that isn't a reason to run from the church. It's actually a reason to cling to it even harder. Because we need each other. This whole sermon series is about that. We need each other desperately. I need the teenagers to drive me nuts, and they need me to smack them upside the head. I need, I need young families to walk alongside me as I parent, and they need me as well to walk alongside them. And I need gray-haired mothers and fathers to pour out their wisdom upon me, to encourage me. And they need me to teach them basic technology skills, you know, apps and... And so we comfort one another. We share in each other's pains and our burdens and our hurts and our cares. Third point, we are comforted by our sharing in Christ's sufferings. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, with which, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you, as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. When I was in youth group many moons ago, I went to see the Chronicle of Narnia. Remember that Chronicles of Narnia in, in movie theaters? Do you remember what movie theaters were like? you remember that? And I'll never forget the part near the end. Uh, it's a children's film, but there's a part near the end where Aslan, the great lion, is captured by the white witch. And it's a very dark moment where the creatures of darkness have shaved him. They've, they've strapped him down to the stone table. They're spitting upon him. They're beating him. And in that theater of youth groups, I mean, it's opening night, let's be real. It's youth groups and it's... We're there and you can hear a pin drop. Why is that? Because our hearts and our spirits are reacting to the truth beneath the story. And as the white witch raised her dagger to slay Aslan, to pierce his heart, my sweet youth pastor, Eric, he, he shouts, Stop! But the white witch doesn't stop. Because you see, Aslan had to pay for Edmund's betrayal. Someone has to take the knife. Beloved, is there any other true story more beautiful than this. Jesus takes the knife. And now we worship in the light of that truth. We marvel at the deep magic that the white witch knew nothing about. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world to pay for my sin, to pay for your sin. This is the great suffering of our Savior. Our Lord endured this on our behalf. And now he calls us to come join him both in his triumph and in his trials. And if anyone desires to come after me, he says, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In John 12, 21, there's this uh, interesting passage where the Greeks come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And if you keep reading, you're going to notice something very strange. In fact, it never tells us that Jesus is like, oh my word, that's great news, send the Greeks. Instead, he actually replies to Philip by saying this. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus' response is basically this to the Greeks. No. No, you can't see me at least not 
yet. Now I want you to think on Jesus' analogy. Think about that picture of the grain of wheat in your hand. What, ha- what, is that, what does it look like? What is, is that what wheat looks like? Sort of, but not really. Because in order for it to attain its true wheatness, you have to bury it. It has to die, and you put it in the earth, and then all of a sudden, after a while of watering it and caring for it, it shoots forth. And the stalk is there, and the husk is there, and you see it, and it's wonderful. And now the farmer takes it, and he, he husks it, he takes the grain off, and he replants it, and he repeats this process over and over a thousand times. And what Jesus is saying to these men, to these Greeks, he's saying, there's coming a time when men and women will see me, but it's a result of my suffering. It will be a result of my dying. And this process of death and rebirth will occur a thousand times, a million times in the life of God's people, until the entire earth is filled with the knowledge of God and the harvest is complete. You see, the history of the church is this process, through death into life, through death into life, through death into life. And so, as we share in small ways in Christ's suffering on this earth here and now, by doing so, it produces endurance through death into life, through death into life, by looking to the cross, by seeing Jesus as our Savior, suffering Savior, we can be healed, we can find comfort, and we can rejoice even in the midst of life's trials. I'm going to hammer this home really quick because I want to show you practically how this plays out in our life. I was in a counseling class, and my professor told this story of a woman who was very young when she was viciously assaulted by a group of men. And this these group of men beat her within an inch of her life. They left her for dead. And it took her years to recover from this, physically, mentally, spiritually, everything. But it left her with scars. She, was, she couldn't get close to men. She had trouble with intimacy towards her husband. She felt abandoned by her father, by God. And the counselor encouraged this woman, walked with her through it, and he, saw, he told her this. He said, I want you to go home, read John 19 over and over, and I want you to meditate on John 19. This is, of course, the account of Jesus' crucifixion, his humiliation on the cross. The woman came back a couple weeks later. She returned He asked her what she had learned from the passage. She sat for a moment, silent, and then with tears welling up in her eyes, she said with a loud voice, they divided his garments among them. They tore his clothes. They tore Jesus' clothes. They tore his clothes. You see, this was her starting point to peace. By looking at the man crushed for my iniquities. For your sin, she could find peace. He was beaten in our place. He gave his robes of righteousness for us. His clothes were torn so that we might be healed. Final point. Our final point. We are comforted by our great hope in Christ. We're going to jump to Romans 8, verse verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I wish I I could remember the name of that kid who came because I'd like to talk to him. Because now I have a a thousand answers to his question. How could God work all things good out of a Category 5 hurricane? How could God work all things for good out of a worldwide pandemic, out of the death of a child, out of 
the death of a spouse out of a cancer diagnosis. How could God do that? Well, it's because in the midst of every trial, Christ is with us. He's in the trenches with us. The cross is proof of that. You see, John 3.16 was lived out in real time in history. I tell my six-year-old son that Jesus knows what, it, what it's like to have boo-boos, and it blows his mind. And it should blow your mind. Christ is near the lowly. He loves the downcast. He loves the outsiders, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants. And in the heat of the fiery furnaces of life, he's there with his people. I'm going to end with an illustration. Uh, I, I actually ended with this illustration almost three years ago when I left. And I heard it at Majnik. Uh, years and years ago, and it's so good, I thought I'd leave it here with you guys again today. Uh, this is a story called Winton's Blues. It was in an Atlantic magazine, and it was written by this guy who was a, a, a journalist, and he went to Greenwich Village to go frequent his favorite jazz bar, his favorite jazz dive, and he went inside, and he sat at the table, and he ordered a drink, and he listens to the band playing. And he looks in the back, and in the back, in the shadows, there's There's a strange guy back there with a trumpet, and he's playing. He's fantastic. And the journalist says, that looks like Wynton Marsalis, famous jazz musician. He says, no, this is a little dive bar. This cannot be Wynton Marsalis. What's he doing here? Well, by the fourth song, there's now no doubt. Wynton Marsalis steps up to perform a solo. He goes, that's Wynton Marsalis. I'm here at this little bar, and he's playing. This is incredible. And Winton steps into the light to do a solo of this song called I Don't Stand the Ghost of a Chance with You. This is what he writes in the article. He says, The author quickly jotted down on his notepad one word, magic. He says he performed the song in murmurs and sighs at points nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. And when he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, this title statement in declarative tones allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand ghost of a chance. And all of a sudden from the crowd, a cell phone went off. Went and paused. He was motionless. The cell phone continued to go. The guy was embarrassed. He got up and left. And the writer of the article wrote his, on his notepad one more time. He wrote, magic ruined. The cell phone offender left. Went and Marsalis didn't skip a beat. He began improvising on the cell phone ring. He went off for a couple minutes and finally he came back I don't stand the ghost of a chance with you. Everyone in the dive bar erupted in applause. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was the loudest cell phone ring this world's ever heard. The cross was magic ruined. The pandemic was magic ruined. And what does Jesus do? He improvises. The cross was always plan A. There was never a plan B. It was always plan A. And he takes the melody of magic ruined and he weaves it into a beautiful melody of life and redemption for us, for his bride. And I'm here to tell you today that he's willing to do it to your rotten melody. 
whatever your life is, He's going to take your song and He's going to weave it into His glorious, majestic song of truth and triumph. And you may have come into this place today as the vilest of sinners, but you could leave here whiter than snow. You just have to turn your eyes to Christ. Turn your eyes to Christ, you will be saved. You see, there is a day coming very soon when all these tears will be no more. When our eyes will close one last time, we'll awake to blinding light in our own bedroom, the one we've been waiting for our entire lives. And we're going to be bathed in the warmth of the King's light forever. So would you look to Him? Would you look to Christ today? Would you look at the person next to you and thank God for them? Love one another. Honor one another. Sing to one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Let's pray. Jesus, what a joy it is to be your bride. What an absolute awe-inspiring thing it is that you have boo-boos that you took them in my place, in our place, that you take this rotten melody that the world gives us so many times and you are weaving it into a beautiful melody of life and redemption, joy and comfort. And so as we struggle through together, as we weep together, as we laugh together, thank you that you are with us. In the midst of the joy and the tears, our God is with us. I hope that's a comfort to your people today. It's a great comfort to me. Jesus Christ, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.